And good morning, church family. Hey, I will add my welcome on this Palm Sunday. What a special day. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate what's known as the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on that last week before he went to the cross, died for our sins, rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, which makes next Sunday Resurrection Sunday or Easter. How many people are excited about that? I am too. On this day, the week before that, almost 2,000 years ago, at the end of Jesus' three years of ministry, all doing all kinds of things that we're studying every week right now as we go through the book of Matthew, he enters Jerusalem one final time to the total celebration in the city, the crowds enthusiastically waving these palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, oh save us, thinking that surely this man was going to be the promised prophesied Messiah who would be the king and raise Israel to great power and overthrow the Romans. Oh, but didn't they notice he was riding on a donkey, not a war horse? And right after that time of celebration that happens on this triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, Jesus begins doing things that were totally unexpected, counter to what they expected him to do. By the end of that dramatic week, those who had been rejecting Jesus all along I mean, he had his rejectors, he had those who believed in him, but those who rejected him all along, they were able to convince those crowds that by the end of that week they should crucify him. Well, that's Palm Sunday, that's today. It's helpful for us to realize that right now, minus the time changes, there are two billion people in the world celebrating this together with us in lots of different cultures. Just imagine all the cultures in the world and the different places, Christians... We're joining these two billion people doing this today. That is powerful, an expression of Jesus' mission being fulfilled. Now, not all churches in the world have easy access to palm branches. Tristan already established that these don't grow in Warsaw very well. But all around the world, people use different things. I did a little research. In some places, they use willow branches or olive branches or spruce branches or flower arrangements or even colorful scarves. And I asked our uh, missionary, Mike Taylor, who's right here, uh, missionary in Central African Republic, what do they use in Central African Republic? Do they use palm trees there on, on Palm Sunday? He said, well, they may, may out in the jungle, but in the city, the palm trees are the nut palm variety, and they, they get to be 100 feet tall. So they don't bother really risking climbing up there to get the palm branches down. I thought that was pretty fascinating. All around the world. Jesus' church is kicking off Holy Week right now. And as we've been in our series in Matthew, Follow the King, we, we are going to get to the Palm Sunday text in about two months, in June. And when we get there, we're going to give it full treatment as we enter that story. But where God has us right now is back in chapter 15, just a little bit before we get there. But this is really significant for us to... to experience the journey that Jesus has been leading us all on over these last several weeks, because it's in these experiences that are happening right now that we find out everything about what led up to the crowds yelling, crucify him, and him going to the cross, and then rising from the dead. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 15, and that's where we're going to be today. If you need a bulletin, oh, we're out of bulletins. Okay, we'll take note of that. Thanks, Aaron. Usually, we'll pass out the bulletins. 
Okay, open your Bible still to Matthew chapter 15, and what we've seen over the last few weeks, if you haven't been around, is Jesus, we're in these middle chapters of, of the Gospel of Matthew, and, and we call these the rejection chapters. A lot of people believe in Jesus, his, his crowds and his fame are growing, but there's a lot of rejection against him as well. And we have seen belief and rejection. We've seen battles and contrasts. We've seen hard hearts and humbled hearts, and we've seen disbelief and worship. And that continues today. Today we're faced with the battle between be religious or follow Jesus. You see, humans, we've established that our default system is legalism. That's who we are by nature. Humans create superficial religion traditions and superstitions so we can put our kind of our faith and trust and affections into those so we don't have to humble ourselves and worship King Jesus. That's what humans do and King Jesus confronts those today. This message today going through chapter 15 is going to contrast false belief with real faith and after that it's going to explode into a mission sermon at the end. So let's get to it. We see the first thing, point one, is religions and traditions versus real faith. Last week, if you have your Bibles open, you can just scan up to the last couple verses of chapter 14. We ended last week with the amazing miracles of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then walking on water on the Sea of Galilee. Now this map that we have up here is going to be very important today. You'll see it a few times throughout the day. So follow along. The people, okay, the last couple of verses of chapter 14, Jesus was getting away from the crowds and he heads to the, here's the Sea of Galilee, he heads to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, just south of Capernaum, which you see there, to the area of Gennesaret. Still in Israel, Israel's all of this, Jerusalem here, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, this is all Israel, and they're still in Israel where they've been, and we're going to talk about that. They go off to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, trying to get away, but people recognized him, they brought all their sick, and he compassionately healed them. This sets up the conflicts that we see in chapter 15 between the religious traditions of humans and real faith that Jesus teaches. And instantly we see two vital aspects highlighted in this first battle. In real faith, God's word is the authority and our worship is real. Let's look at these. God's word is our authority. God's word is authority. As Jesus ministers there in Gennesaret, a group of Pharisees come up from Jerusalem trying to cause more trouble with their hearts stuck on their religion and hardened against God. Verses 1 and 2. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So this was a ritual back then, the washing of hands, and it still continues to be today a ritual in Jerusalem. It had nothing to do with hygiene, personal hygiene, washing your hands for germs. It was a ceremonial ritual, which he just, the, the Pharisees said, the tradition of the elders. 
As we've noted before, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders had replaced the, the intention of the law of God, which was to have a true heart for God and his blessing and a relationship with God, and they'd replaced that with rules and regulations, legalism, traditions, and Jesus was confronting their hard-hearted rejection of an intimate knowledge of God. And Jesus confronted that every chance he had, and he confronted it, confronted it strongly. Let's look in verse 3. He uses an example here to turn this back on them and teach. And I'm going to explain what he says. He said, he answered them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Okay, the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. He gives an example. Verse 4, for God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, and I just want to explain what he's saying. Everybody then would understand the cultural application here. What you say is, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. They're, they're rejecting or ignoring God's actual word so that they can get out of having to take care of their parents. And he's calling them on that. That's the example he chose. He says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrite. This is what they did. They downplayed, they ignored the word of God so that they could emphasize their own preferences, get away with the things they wanted to do, their own philosophers, their own doctrines and practices, their wants that they could have as long as they you know, just stayed away from carefully studying and applying God's word. The same thing happens today. There are so many teachers out there, teachings, philosophies, practices, cultural values, things that we downplay the word of God because we know they won't hold up compared to the word of God so that we can participate in those things and follow those things. We try to make God's word conform to what we want it to say. We ignore the parts that we don't like. That happens today a lot. So Jesus is speaking to all of us. Here are several examples of how that happens this very day. First, in the church, we Christians say we believe the Bible, and then we don't, we don't follow half of it. That's not consistent. That makes us hypocrites. That makes us practical atheists. So be careful with that. Believe it all. Further, we argue a lot over our preferences, and this is a human natural thing to do too. We turn our preferences into biblical absolutes. So one group of Christians will disparage another group's preferences and then they'll have their own preferences that they worship and ignore God's word. We need to study what God's word actually says and come together, which is what it says to do. Everyone check your soapboxes and pet peeves. Here's some examples outside of the church. Cults, a lot of those form. Here's how. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons specifically claim to have their own scriptures. I mean, they, they say this is the word of God, something other, extra revelation from God. They are not part of biblical Christianity. Others, other cult leaders or false teachers say things like, God spoke to me, God told me this. And you see what that does? It puts whatever he's going to say next on par, equal in authority with the word of God. Be careful with that. 
If you hear somebody say, God told me this, and claims that to be from God, God is inerrant. So you have all the power and authority of the word of God in what you're going to say. That's how cults get started. That's how people get hurt, devastated, misled. And if you've been following any false teachers that are saying things like that, you need to stop immediately and come under the orthodox teaching of the word of God. Here's another Catholic teaching. Catholic, study church history. It's a fascinating study over the last 2,000 years of development. One thing that happened with the Catholic church along the way is they added to the word of God two additional things that they claim in the, in the literal Catholic catechism this is what they claim. It happened about a 1,000 years ago. They said, anything that the Pope says ex cathedra from the chair is equal to authority on, as Scripture, as God's Word. Then they said, the church itself and church traditions are also equal in authority. That's what their catechism states. That's exactly what Jesus is addressing here in Matthew chapter 15. You're making void the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God. This we protest strongly. There's lots of other things I've grouped into contemporary trends. There's always this strong pull within us to, to ignore God's word and follow instead the, the latest stuff, the, the pragmatic things, what, what seems like the best business principles or, or the coolest and latest thing, or maybe the, the cultural values that you know, we want to fit in with culture when they are opposed to the word of God. We aim to follow Jesus here for real. And he says that means this is our authority. Amen? Amen. That's real faith in Jesus. Real faith means first then God's word is our authority. And then Jesus calls out how that effect on our worship, on our intimate relationship with God. Not only are all these religious traditions and, and sacraments and, and things distracting, conflicting the word of God, they're also taking our heart right out of true worship and relationship with God. They're killing your worship. This is what he says next, seven, verses 7 through 9. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Understand what Jesus is saying. Honors me with their lips. How, we do the same thing. We say the right things. We know how to quote the verses. We know how to make it appear like we're you know, really close to God, really filled with the Spirit, doing the rituals to look good. But check your heart. Is your heart far from God? You don't really know him. You don't really care about him. Not really. You care about yourself. You don't really worship him. Makes you wonder, what percentage of Christians are like this with masks on, pretending, but having a hard heart, never having repented in our hearts, never having loved God or worshipped him, really, you value dozens of things higher than what, what God would ever say. How many people in this church have hearts like that? Now you might say, ouch, and that's the point. These are the kinds of challenging words from Jesus that led him to the cross. But he wants what's best for you. Jesus is going after all this placing of religions and preferences ahead of him for our own good because God is the only one worthy of our worship. 
And everything is better when we worship God for real in our heart. Now, starting in verse 10, he's going to turn to the crowds who have been listening to this conversation that he's having with the Pharisees, and he's going to teach them. And he's going to compare next, you see point two, he's going to compare external rituals with internal holiness. Begin in verse 10. And he called the people to him, and he said, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Okay, that's the religious ritual. Said that. It goes in, what you can't eat the, you know, have to wash your hands before you eat, can't eat the wrong thing. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Here's a little aside. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Yeah, I think he knew that. Because he said this, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. He's calling them frauds. He said, let them alone. Abandon them. Leave them. Don't pay attention to them. Don't come under their influence. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet here because he's tired of seeing people being led astray by false teachers. Religious leaders. Whom these people revered. But they had it all wrong, and they were steering these people straight to hell, into the pit. The Pharisees taught the people that religious external rituals, like putting the right food in your mouth, will make one holy. This is wrong. This teaching is wrong. Following these blind guides will lead you both to hell. Leave them alone. Get away from these influences in your life. Now, Peter, gladly for us, asked Jesus to explain a little bit more about this parable that he just said. So we get the explanation. Verse 15, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? That's it. Once it's expelled, that food is gone. It's not that food that makes you holy or unholy at all. It's what's in your heart that corrupts a soul. This is what he said, verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. That's how you can tell what your heart is. What's coming out of your mouth? This defiles a person. Are you, when you're not at church, cussing, cursing people, speaking inappropriately, irreverently against authority? Are you speaking disrespectfully to anyone? What Jesus says is showing your true heart. Verse 19, for out of the heart come all these things, signs that you're thinking, evil thoughts, murder, your anger toward people, adultery, sexual immorality, what you're thinking, your lust, those things come out. That's what's in your heart. Theft, jealousy, I wish I had something else, false witness, Slander, those unchristlike feelings towards other people, these are what defile a person out of your heart, signaled by the words that you're saying. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile anyone. He's comparing, contrasting external rituals with your internal heart, your holiness internally. Our greatest need is not looking holy on the outside. 
It is having a changed heart of holiness. It truly knows God, truly loves God, and is pursuing Christ-likeness. It begins with Jesus' complete forgiveness of all your sin. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, you you haven't experienced this. You haven't come alive spiritually yet. Now, once we do, I have a list of 42 different things that happen at the moment of our salvation. It's an amazing study, and, and that's a topic for another sermon. But a lot happens the moment you give your life to Christ. He takes all of your sin away because he's paid for it already. He fills you with his Holy Spirit, gives you his power and authority. All authorities in heaven and earth is given to him. He passes that to us. He, we have all the authority over Satan. Satan has no power over us, only tricks and deception. He gives us all of this. Then he fills us with his Holy Spirit so that we can know him and can worship him. It's not about external do's and don'ts. What Jesus is doing here fulfills the prophecy of Ezekiel. Let's look at that. Who foretold hundreds of years before that this would happen. That the Messiah, Jesus, who we call him now, would start this very new covenant between God and humans. This very thing. Meditate on Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Who said, from God, this word, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Talking about the cleanness here. Not from the external rituals. And you should be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. This happened as a result of Jesus bearing all of our sins on the cross. Washed white as snow. We're cleansed once we believe and receive him. It goes on, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's where the holiness flows out of your faith and your worship. Through our saving faith in Jesus, Jesus puts his Holy Spirit in us after he removes our sin and guilt. And now with the Holy Spirit's filling and the power that he gives us, now we can bear Real fruit. And the struggle's not over until we get to heaven. But we, are fi- we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can also grieve the Holy Spirit and quench him as well. If you choose to disobey God's word and not follow Christ. But he is there. And his grace is inexhaustible. I just want you to, to know this. It's not about your performance and your trying harder that we earn God's grace It's a free gift, and he's given it to us fully. We have access to this. He'll always take us back, and you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and live abundantly and victoriously and close to God and stronger in your faith and follow Jesus. We have all of that already is ours. That's exciting. Amen? Amen. God is good. We just grow in the awareness each day of how good he is. Around here, we call this worshiping the king. That's where it starts. Then that transfers into maturing as family. And if you know the, mem- the vision statement that I'm quoting here, that spills out. What's the third part of our vision statement? Engage the world. And that's exactly how chapter 15 plays out now. The implications for point three are clear. Point three, real faith leads to global mission. Worshiping God, maturing in Christ-likeness, really following him with a true heart is going to pour you out into the world. Let's see exactly how Jesus taught this. 
the world doesn't need more superficial religion and tradition and practices and unbiblical religion. We have what the world needs, and that's real faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus is going to show us real faith is global mission. Up to now, here's where the map comes in extremely handy and important right now. Up to now, Jesus' ministry has been almost entirely to Israel. He was called and appointed to Israel. He traveled and taught mostly to Israel. He sent his disciples to Israel. But he took steps right here in chapter 15 in what would eventually be the calling for the church. That's us. We see this in Acts 1.8. We see Jesus' last words on earth to the church as he's commissioning and ready to start the church. He said, but the Holy Spirit will come upon you, which he has, for the purpose of being my witnesses in Jerusalem. I'm going to point to this. Wherever your city is, to all of Judea, your surrounding area, to Samaria, the next place where there's foreigners, and to the ends of the earth. And let me tell you, most of us are not Jewish, which means we are the recipients of that mission to reach all the Gentile world. Is that good news? Say amen. 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 Now that's our mission to continue that to the ends of the earth, to the nations. Last week in chapter 14, we saw, you have to understand, we're journeying through the Gospel of Matthew where he's taking his disciples and he's discipling them. He's teaching them all kinds of things. Last week, we saw when the disciples first, for the first time, worshipped Jesus as God. Today, right now, right here, we see the first time that the disciples get it. Whoa, I'm on a worldwide mission, not just to Israel. Let's join this journey. Isn't it fun to travel through God's unfolding plan like this? Here we see the disciples are going to have this awareness right now. Let's, let's join them. He's going to show them and us that his mission is to reach the world. And to reach the world, peoples that are different from us, we have to overcome three boundaries. Let's see how Jesus teaches us this. First is overcome cultural bias boundaries. To, to teach them this, Jesus is going to take them out of Israel for the first time here. In verse 21, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Let's look at the map again. This is Israel, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. And now he's taken them for the first time. They're like, whoa, where are we going, Jesus? To Tyre and Sidon in the land of Canaan. Syrophoenicia, it became called, but for hundreds of years, all throughout the Old Testament, the Canaanites were the most vile, godless, pagan people. All their gods gave them license and gods gave them license and permission to pursue all the self-gratification and self-pleasure they possibly could, and child sacrifice was the resulting sacrament. It was a, a nation that was under God's judgment and wrath almost the entire time throughout the Old Testament, hundreds of years. That's where he's taking the disciples. We're going to go there. The disciples are probably like, uh, I don't know about this. And it turns out that he and his disciples are going to go and reach the, a person in Tyre and Sidon whose faith, who has real faith and has cried out for God to come and help save her daughter. And her faith, her real faith, is about to be met. Let's see this happen in verses 22 through 24. And behold, a Canaanite woman. 
from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. This Canaanite, calling him the son of David, acknowledged her faith and belief that he is God's Messiah. That wasn't something a Canaanite knew anything about or, or believed. But that's what she called him. She said, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now Jesus, the master faith builder, teacher, tester, discipler, watch this exchange. Don't miss what he does here. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. He's, he's teaching the disciples. This is a discipleship journey here. This woman comes, expresses some, some astounding faith. Let's see if the disciples pass the test. Are they going to receive her? And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. I guess they didn't pass that test, right? Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now, he's not done yet. He's not going to correct him yet. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let me just make sure we know what's going on. This lady was a different ethnicity from a different culture. She spoke a different language. And she was a woman talking to men, which is another cultural boundary. That's a lot of cultural boundaries there. The disciples didn't, you know, they weren't ready to accept any of that. But she came to Jesus and went against all cultural boundaries to express her real faith. And he went across all cultural boundaries to engage her, engage the world. We're following Jesus. Now he's going to test her faith and test the disciples' faith and train the disciples in what happens next. He said, first, I was sent, this is a test, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So he tested her awareness that God's people who humbly acknowledge, God's people are those who humbly acknowledge that they are lost without him. Let's see if she passes the test. Verse 25. But she came to him, despite what he said about only being for Israel, she came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, he's still pressing to see her, measure her real faith. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children, the children of Israel, that was the common thought in Israel, is that everybody else was dogs. So he's playing off of that. Now she had called him the son of David, so she was aware that the Messiah came for Israel and that he was the only source of salvation, the Israel God, the Messiah, and she believed he was him and that he was the only one who could save her. And so here's how she responded, verse 27. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She acknowledges, you're pushing on me, but I'm going to push back. My faith is real. And I know that even the crumbs of your grace are sufficient to heal my daughter, to save me. And he responded, yes. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as your desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. He tested her faith, made sure it was real. And her answer even amazes Jesus. Oh, daughter, your faith is amazing. Brothers and sisters, this is really neat. In the book of Matthew, there are only two times where Jesus 
commends the faith of somebody. Only twice. This is one, this Canaanite woman. The other one, you might remember, was back in Matthew chapter 8, the head honcho, Roman centurion, that expressed great faith in Jesus. And it it amazed Jesus. He's like, whoa, I haven't even seen this faith in, in all of Israel. Everyone can come to Jesus, everyone. And I encourage everyone to believe in Jesus 100%. And he will save and rescue you from your sin and wipe it all away and lavish his grace on you and fill you and all the other things we've been talking about. And then he calls us to proclaim that good news to everyone else and to share it as we're following Christ. This is his mission, to save all nations, all nations through his gospel. And while the disciples are learning a lot of neat stuff, from Jesus right now, aren't we, today? Okay, we're not finished yet. I want to make sure that you're tracking with what we've seen in in chapter 15, in the entire chapter. So what comes next? There's two more boundaries that need to be overcome if we're really following Jesus and reaching the the entire world. It's a global mission. The first is cultural bias boundaries. Look, we've got our natural flesh wants to stay away from people who are different than us. Hmm, Our spirit-filled flesh goes right to everybody, everybody, no matter what. Then, though, we have some personal boundaries that we need to overcome. Well, that's going to be an inconvenience for me. Okay, that's a, I got some personal boundary that we need to overcome if we're going to follow Jesus. Let's see what the text says. Follow Jesus' example here. They leave Tyre and Sidon, and here's where they go next. They go up here. The disciples are probably expecting we're going to go back down to to Israel where we're safe and comfortable, right? Now Jesus is teaching, you've got to give up your personal rights, your personal comfort. They were going this way down into the Decapolis. That means ten cities. That is a Roman occupation, and it's a Gentile land. So Jesus is now taking his disciples from the Canaanite land to the Gentile Roman land. That's no better. Follow this chapter. Jesus first has turned our thinking upside down about what makes someone clean, and then he takes them right into the lands of the people who were thought to be unclean. Is everybody tracking that? This is following Jesus. There's a cost to reaching all peoples. It costs some of our personal rights. Here's what the text says, verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. He's trying to get away from the crowds for a while. You've got the sea and the mountains. Those are some boundaries. Those are, he's trying to set some personal boundaries here. But no, the crowds, verse 30, great crowds came to him, bringing them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed. He didn't turn them away to rest. He healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame, walking, and the blind, seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. These are Roman Gentiles, not God believers, until that day when Jesus set aside his personal comfort and healed them and saved them. And they gave glory to the God of Israel. Okay, so we have learned we've got to overcome cultural biases. We've got to set our personal rights aside. Now we've got the national boundaries. Here's how chapter 15 ends. 
We overcome national boundaries on this global mission for Jesus. The disciples would begin, begin to see this, what we see clearly now, okay? We understand now because we talk about the Great Commission and we're a church and we're not in Israel, so we understand intuitively that the gospel has spread and is spreading. But this is all brand new at this time. They were, they, were just now, they were just figuring out that way back in Genesis chapter 12 when God called Abraham, remember that? Father Abraham said, I'm calling you to start a new nation so that all the nations will be blessed through your seed. Now it's starting to make sense. God's all about the nations, about the global mission. Now, here he is bringing his disciples, and here's where Jesus is teaching this to his disciples for the first time. We're crossing national boundaries. Here we are in Roman territory, and we get to the feeding of the 4,000. Now, if you were here last week, you might be thinking, wait a minute, we just had this. We just had the feeding of the 5,000 last week in chapter 14. Isn't this just a repeat of the same thing? And the answer is no, not at all. The details are totally different, but the geography is the key, where they are. Let me go back to the map. The feeding of the 5,000 took place in Galilee. That's Israel. And they were astounded by his great miracle. And we learned a ton of stuff from that miracle last week. But now he's taken them way up into Canaan, way down here into the Decapolis. He's doing all these things for Gentiles. He's blowing their minds. They're like, we didn't think these people were anything to God. Now what he's going to do, what we see here as we look at, Rome, at, at Matthew 14 and 15 we see some neat things. First of all, if we look back in the Old Testament, Moses had two meal miracles back-to-back. -back. Elijah did two meal miracles back-to-back. -back. Now Jesus is going to do these two meal miracles back-to-back. -back. I also want you to notice that Jesus is finishing his earthly ministry. He finished his ministry in Israel with a meal, the feeding of the 5,000. He's finishing his ministry in the Gentile regions with a meal, the feeding of the 4,000. And he's going to finish his ministry at the end of, in Jerusalem, with the meal that we're going to celebrate this Friday, Good Friday, the last Passover that he transformed into Christian communion, the weekend that he was hung on the cross and died for our sins. And it ends each phase with a meal. And here's the meal at the end of his ministry to the nations, the feeding of the 4,000. Let's read how he shows his disciples here. That his mission of salvation is for the entire world. We're just going to read the text, verses 32 through 39. Then Jesus called his disciples and said to him, to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? And to all of us that are reading this, we're like, do they not remember what happened just a couple weeks ago? And as we wrestle with this, I think the answer has to be yes. They, of course they remember. But sit on this. Dwell on this. They knew that Jesus had the power, but they're still thinking, would Jesus really do a miracle here and take care of these people? They're under Roman occupation. These are Romans. We hate them. Would Jesus really feed them with a miracle like he did the Israelites, our brothers? I think that's the underlying thought, why they would 
asks such a question. Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Their hearts are still hard. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish. And having given thanks, again, everything starts with prayer. Jesus keeps modeling this. He prays, and then he does the miracle. Then he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. And we'll pick up there on Friday night in our Good Friday service. A similar miracle to the 5,000, yes, but different. Because in this one, he showed that Jesus came to save and satisfy all peoples, all peoples in all the world who would come to him and be satisfied by him. That is good news, and he calls us to tell everyone, just to pass this on, just to pass this good news on. This is the mission these disciples, these disciples would give their lives to later. Church history tells us, after Jesus ascended into heaven, 10 of, of the 11 disciples here would go off into the nations and all of them would be executed for this mission. The only one who wasn't was John, who survived being boiled alive. God protected his life so that when he was about 90 years old, he wrote the book of Revelation. But these men right here gave their lives to be martyred and executed to proclaim this message. And we need to be ready to die for Jesus if that's what it takes. We can certainly live for him. Amen? For next steps today, first is a heart check. Where is your heart? What are you following? What are you placing in value above God? Worship God. Believe his word and his spirit will, do, will enable you to follow him wherever he leads you and to obey him and thrive. This is good. It's good to be healed from God, empowered by him, comforted by him. Don't follow false teachers. And if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior yet, today, any day, can be the day of your salvation. You can come to him and ask him. He's paid the cost already. And he's inviting you today to it. And then, automatically, we join his mission to proclaim this good news to the world. We are one week away from Easter, which Tristan said again is the biggest attendance worldwide for church. People are interested in hearing about Jesus and will come on this day if they are invited and prayed for. We have one week left. Let's go invite the world to come and hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. If we reach out to the world outside of our window, many will come and live. We're going to sing that song to pump us up for this mission one final week before Easter. Worship team, as soon as I pray, Come on up. Lord, as we end this service today, I pray that we are filled with that same very spirit and we grow just like those disciples did in worshiping and following you, the same Jesus. With real faith and a real response, we worship you and pray this church is on fire in the Holy Spirit.
and for the people in our community and world. In Jesus' powerful name we pray, amen.